Welcome to another tale from Mark Moxon, the web's favourite travel writer. Today's tale is about a place called Singapore City, and I wrote it in Singapore on the 22nd of November 1997. I hope you enjoy it. What seems like a long time ago, my sister visited Singapore. I remember thinking how brave this was, and my mind conjured up images of sparkling skyscrapers catching the equatorial sun, Chinese lanterns hanging in the streets, and junks lapping in the harbour. I imagined Singapore to be like Hong Kong, with its distinctive smells, immense crowds and tiny people, and I was almost completely wrong. Singapore is just another city. It has neither the insane appeal of Hong Kong, or, from what I gather, Bangkok. It's much more a Western city than an Asian one, and feels no different from big Australian cities. I would say that it's no different from most European and American cities, but Singapore has almost no historical feeling to it, as most of the old buildings have long been raised to the ground to make way for skyscrapers, and even those still standing are pretty modern in the great scheme of things. So is Singapore a city with no soul, as its critics have been heard to say? That's not so easy to answer. Arriving from Indonesia, Singapore's soul reached out and mesmerised me right from my arrival at the sprawling metropolis of Changi Airport. As the taxi sped through sparkling lights towards the skyline of glowing skyscrapers and huge neon signs, the taxi driver told me about his workaholic brother, who didn't take a holiday for three years, took his accrued time off in one go, and after a week was back in the office, working during his holiday because he didn't have a life outside the office. This was more than a little hard to imagine after the astoundingly lackadaisical world of Indonesia. I was staying with a friend, Philip, an investment banker, a showman, an excellent host, a city socialite, a work-hard, play-hard go-getter and an entertaining conversationalist rolled into one. And because he was only going to be there for one night before shooting off to Bangkok, we hit the town. It almost proved too much. Real beer, yuppie pubs, a late night and high-powered people with brains. The tentacles of Western civilization reached out for me with its promises of a better life and solutions for all. I had visions of what this short but sweet visit to Singapore might offer me. Hot showers, a kitchen in which I could cook, supermarkets, phones that didn't crackle and hiss, pizzas and burgers. My pupils were probably dilated with the opiate of Singapore. The effect of seductive Singapore lasted well into the next day, despite my waking up with Indonesia's parting gift. Yes, you guessed it, I left Bali with a few extra friends living in my stomach, and it took about five days to shift the bastards and get my temperature down to normal. I simply wandered around, shamelessly gawking at the scenery. And it rained! I'd forgotten what it was like to be soaked by nature. The last rain I remembered had been in the Bada Valley towards the end of the trek with Peter. It was simply wonderful, cleaning the air, removing the humidity, reducing the famed haze to almost nothing. I was truly in the promised land, and then I realised. For the first time in 25 months, I was back in the Northern Hemisphere, my home. Perhaps Singapore was putting on a special English weather pattern to welcome me back into the bosom of the North, where a northerly wind is cold, where the sun is in the south, and where the constellations are those of the ancient civilizations. Singapore has a smell too. It smells of perfume. If you're in one of the millions of immaculately manicured parks dotted between the high-rises, the smell of flowers permeates the air. Maybe the gardeners, of which there are many, most of Indian descent, spray the flowers with scent, 
but I'd never experienced the city's gardens in such an olfactory way before. And if you're walking down the street, well away from the parks, the smell is of opium, escape, kouros, obsession. It's like a nasal trip through the pages of Vogue. The result is a city that smells divine and reeks of expense. For Singapore is a monument to money and capitalism. Every sign and advert is in the language of business, English, and everyone speaks English too, or at the very least, the local version of English known as Singlish, in which checkbook becomes Chebu, last week becomes Laswi, and so on. The money is printed in English. The street names are in English. I presume the meetings held on the executive floors of those sparklingly phallic tower blocks are in English. There are half a million expats living in Singapore, an astounding number when you consider the entire population of Singapore is a little over three million, and the whole place reflects this. If I had visited Singapore straight from England without first having explored the multiculturalism of Australia, the European Polynesian confluence of the Tuamotus, or the insanity of Indonesia, I would no doubt have been bowled over by the Asian character of Singapore. But having come straight from the jugular, so to speak, Singapore appears to be so different from the rest of its region that it's hard to think of as Asian. It's Ameripean, Euro-American, or some other disgusting nouveau word. It's not soulless, it's just an amalgam, and as with all amalgams, some things get lost in the mix. The high standard of Singaporean technology is also to blame for hiding the city's character behind closed doors. It's those closed doors that drive home the difference between the plastic world of Singapore's offices and the harsh reality of equatorial life. If you walk past an office block just as the next stock market guru is bursting through the automatic doors, the rush of chilled air that blasts out is intense. Air conditioning is a way of life in Singapore. Not a bad thing when the average temperature at the time of year I was there was 35 degrees with 90% humidity. But being blasted by office blocks is a novel experience. You've got to be careful if it happens when there's a crowd about. I swear that if I bumped into someone as they strolled out of an office, I'd have shattered them into lots of tiny pieces. It really is that cold. And the crowds are guaranteed at lunchtime. Standing outside an office block at 12.30pm is fatal. Millions of clean-suited and perfumed people suddenly appear, whisked by on a breath of frozen oxygen, all heading for the local food market, clogging up the pedestrian crossings and pavements in a crowd scene that makes the London Marathon look like a few old ladies out for an evening stroll. It only lasts for a couple of seconds, but it's more destructive than a plague of locusts. Of course, if this were London or New York, the crowd would disperse into the jammed traffic, spreading out like ink in water. But Singapore is the law and order capital of the world, where jaywalking is just one of millions of offences that will get you a hefty fine. Being arrested for jaywalking in the West is simply unlucky, but in Singapore there are even signs everywhere warning you not to cross the road outside of the glare of the little green man. Other heinous crimes include importing chewing gum, which is illegal in Singapore, though individual possession isn't an offence, not flushing public toilets, smoking just about anywhere, and criticising the government. The result is a wonderfully clean, fresh and clinical city, populated by people who are treated like children. You know that feeling in the pit of the stomach when you're at a wedding and the priest says, speak now or forever hold your peace, and you think, I wonder what would happen if I stood up and said something? Or when you're in a meeting with your boss and you think to yourself, wouldn't it be great if I stood up and told him exactly what we all think of him? 
Well, I kept getting the same feeling when walking around Singapore, except my thoughts were more along the lines of, I wonder what would happen if I crossed the street right here? Or I wonder what they'd do if I didn't flush? It quite unnerved me to be in a city where passing wind in a public place probably contravenes the Health Regulation Code of 1987, Appendix C, Subsection 3. No wonder everyone suffers from executive stress. It is a peaceful and relaxing place, though, despite the draconian government and its desire to make sure everyone is safe and happy, by decree. I was able to realise my dream of the last two months, to sit in parks undisturbed, able to type up my travelogue, read a book or just snooze. Indeed, in the whole time I was in Singapore, I was approached by just one chatty local, who turned out to be a well-educated, well-travelled and interesting man, speaking fluent English, French and Mandarin. Our conversation was only terminated because the heavens opened. What a difference from Indonesia. But is this place a utopian paradise or an Orwellian nightmare? Damned if I know, but I do know that in this modernist tomorrow's city, not everything's as ultra-futuristic as it might first appear. For example, at the supermarket you still have to weigh your fruit and vegetables at a separate counter, as the checkouts don't have scales. I thought this had gone out with Fred Flintstone. And neither the supermarket nor the post office would accept credit cards, unlike almost everywhere else in the city that leapt on plastic like a hungry dog does a bone. I had to cash an extra traveller's cheque to mail off my photographs. And then there are the stories of the government that go beyond belief. The birth control programme introduced in the early 1970s was so effective that it had to be reversed, and now there are tax incentives for families to have three children and adverts everywhere about how wonderful families are. It seems too many Singaporeans are caught up in office life to appreciate that there's a world out there. Then there was the government's statement that they are actively seeking more people from abroad to reside in Singapore because the current younger generation is too damn lazy to push Singapore into the next century. They've grown up with everything and have no reason to struggle like their parents and grandparents had to. The talented and driven members of the younger generation aren't that interested in staying in Singapore either. An understandable attitude and they have the skills to bugger off. So Singapore needs to bring in foreigners to help it continue to be a success. And this true story has to be the best summary of Singapore's attitude towards life. When asked to comment on what he thought of the fact that some foreigners found Singapore dull, the Minister for Finance and Foreign Affairs, George Yeo, said, We have to pursue this subject of fun very seriously if we want to stay competitive in the 21st century. Duh. Still, I found Singapore to be an addictive drug, in the same way that an easy life in London was addictive until I left. Cable television, a fridge, air conditioning, swimming pool, nearby shopping malls, millions of them, peaceful parks, no language barrier. It's easy to understand why it was hard to break away in the end. Indeed, the company was excellent, and although I'd planned to spend only a few days hanging around the parks and malls, I ended up staying for 12 days, 12 days of sheer bliss. For example, one Friday night I hit the town with Rebecca, Philip's flatmate, and her boyfriend Daniel. Rebecca, a six-foot-something stunner from Australia, had proved to be wonderful company through the week, on the few occasions that she wasn't staying round Daniel's, and Daniel, the proprietor of a local bar restaurant called Brewworks, was a scholar and a gentleman. I'd forgotten how mesmeric intellectual conversation could be, and Friday night supposedly a quick meal and maybe a beer, seeing as Rebecca was suffering from exhaustion, 
turned into a huge meal, copious beers, and back home somewhere around 3.30am night. I enjoyed every lip-smacking second of it, not least because Brewworks makes its own beer on the premises, and it's quite superb. Saturday night saw Philip and I hit the town for a curry and a couple of beers, in a little restaurant situated right on the Singapore River, in an area known as Boat Quay. A hundred yards away are the skyscrapers of the Central Business District. Over the river is the first landing point of Sir Stamford Raffles, the British governor who is regarded as the father of modern Singapore, and milling round the quay is the most wonderful collection of people you're ever likely to see. Expats, tourists and locals of all sorts of nationalities, suits, shorts and t-shirts, young people, old people. As an exercise in multiculturalism, Singapore excels. This and hundreds of other travel tales can be found at www.moxon.net. That's M-O-X-O-N. This podcast was written, read and produced by Mark Moxon. The music was provided by the Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. I do hope you've enjoyed it, and I look forward to reading to you again soon. Thank you.